Well, you might be familiar with the organization Better Together, as seen in that report. They are a local organization that is promoting regional unity. As you know, St. Louis is a very fractured town ever since the great city-county divorce of 1867. We found it difficult to work together and sometimes even coexist. And because of our divisiveness, we actually have 90 separate municipalities. We waste potentially billions of dollars in duplicated services, and we compete with each other instead of together for businesses and revenue. And Better Together argues that our divisions are responsible for an awful lot of our problems, whether it's uh, racism, crime, uh, massive population loss. And the solutions range from everything from consolidating services to rewriting the state constitution. Now that all sounds great, but there are plenty of critics to city-county merger. Uh, many don't want to assume responsibility for other people's problems. You know, the city created its problems, the city can solve its problems. Uh, many, of, many of our citizens don't want to lose local control. It's one of the things we love about St. Louis, those of us who love St. Louis, which apparently does not include Chris Bryant. Sorry, baseball joke. Um, so not enough people laugh to even know what the heck I'm talking about, so we'll just... He's a Cub player, and apparently he thinks St. Louis is boring. That's, that's what happened this week. I know, all right? See, now, now you get it. Anyway, there's lots of things we love about St. Louis. Uh, we love that it's sort of a big town, but it's got a small town feel. People don't want to give up local control. In fact, critics will point out that reunification efforts have actually failed several times over the past 150 years, and there's no reason to think that this one will succeed. Now, despite the naysayers, Better Together pushes forward. They hope that St. Louisans are so sick of regional division and that we're so sick of falling behind other great American cities that we are finally willing to do something about it. Maybe we've spent enough time living separate lives in our fractured town that we're now open to the notion that civic life would be done better together. Now, Paul, the author of the book of Romans, has a very similar conviction that life and community, and especially church, are done better together. Now, of course, Paul in Romans isn't addressing different civic factions. He's addressing different factions amongst God's people and is not addressing, you know, legal divisions that are only 150 years old. He's actually addressing fundamental divisions to, to humanity between Jew and Gentile that are about as old as humanity itself. So there's some differences, but it's still a conviction of his that life and community and faith and church are done better together. And we've been studying Paul's words in the book of Romans in an extended study here at Rooftop, and right now we're in a series called Food Fight. And in the book of Romans, Paul, just as a reminder, Paul summarizes for us the essence of Christianity. Romans is about Christianity. And Paul summarizes for us what Christianity really is. Christianity is the idea that through faith in Christ, God can make sinners righteous. That's the essence of Christianity as described in Romans. Through faith in Christ, God can make sinners like you and I righteous in his sight. And then also in Romans, Paul explains how that message should impact our lives, how it should make us different, because it should. The message of the gospel should make us more loving, should make us more submissive, and it should also make us more unified. 
Those of us who are committed to Jesus as he who has made us righteous before God should understand that life and church and community are done better together. And we should take the personal steps that we need to do that. So with that said, let me go ahead and share with you our passage for the morning. It's Romans chapter 15, verses 7 through 13. Just so you know, this is actually our last passage in this section of Romans, after which we're going to jump into the final section of Romans. So as they say, if you can believe this, the end is in sight. But first, these words. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the Jewish patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, I will sing the praises of your name, Again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, just a reminder of the context here so that we can sort of appreciate what's going on in this passage. For those of you kind of new to the study, this will be new to you, but for those of you who have been with us, it won't be. Paul is addressing a church in the city of Rome that had started to kind of break apart. Uh, It it consists of, of two groups of Christian people, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. Jewish Christians were Jews who had converted to Christianity. Gentile Christians were non Jews. That's what Gentile means, non Jew. Who had, and they shared a common faith in Jesus Christ as the one who died and saved them from their sins. But they differed over over the matter of the Old Testament law and the role the Old Testament law had in their faith. Many Jewish Christians believed that in order to follow Jesus properly, you kind of had to pay attention to the Old Testament law in some key respects, at least. In this respect, on the matter of food, a lot of Jewish Christians believe that Christians shouldn't eat meat. And Gentile Christians said, no, Jesus actually died to save us from having to obey those laws. Uh, we, don't, we can eat whatever we want. The disagreement had gotten kind of nasty, and it had turned into a, a, a messy little food fight. Now, Paul writes this section in Romans to help these two groups of Christians get along. He insists to them that their unity as God's people is too important to divide over something like this, over whether or not people should eat meat. I mean, the Bible makes clear that God's vision for his people has always been to unite Jew and Gentile together, despite the barriers. That's what this passage is about. Paul quotes several Old Testament prophets who look forward to a time when Jew and Gentile will worship God together, something that frankly would have been inconceivable centuries before. Jew and Gentile despised each other. But God's plan was always to conjoin Jew and Gentile, city and county, black and white, under the leadership of Christ. As Paul says, Christ has become a servant of the Jews 
on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the Jewish patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God. It was always God's plan to bring the Gentiles into his family alongside his chosen people, the Jews. Now, why? Why was that always God's plan? Well, God's a God of love, loves everybody, regardless of how you identify yourself. And also, the Jew and the Gentile need each other. Life, community, church are done better together. And the Romans were forgetting that this was God's plan. They were so obsessed with their differences, with their appetites over food, that they were forgetting God's vision for his people. And we forget this too. Just as the Romans were fracturing over whether or not Christians can eat meat, just as St. Louis fractured in 1867 over the issue of taxes, God's people still fracture. Uh, Pastor Jacob told you last week that there are 47,000, count them, 47,000 Christian denominations in the world today. There are 47,000 different groups of Christians who have felt it necessary to separate over this issue or that belief. Now, many of these groups get along fine, and they are, frankly, an example of healthy diversity in the body of Christ, in the family of God. But lots of them don't. And they are a better example of internecine religious warfare. They're not the result of healthy division or healthy multiplication, but they are unhealthy schism. If you pay attention to the news, you know that Christian schism is practically a daily occurrence. I don't know if anybody's been watching this sort of thing, but... Uh, Just this past past month, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, a very large church over in Ukraine, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church split from the Russian Orthodox Church. These two churches had been part of the same denomination for 400 years. This month, they broke up. Why? Of all things, Vladimir Putin. The Ukrainians didn't want Vladimir Putin, Russian politics, influencing their church. They broke up over politics. Now, denominational schisms, let's be honest, are not problems that we really deal with on an everyday basis. I mean, what's it to you and I that the Ukrainian church split from the Russians? That's a big deal to them. It's, a, it's just a world away uh, from, from us. But, but here's the thing. Behind every schism and division in the church are Christians who have a hard time loving each other. And that is something we deal with. Behind almost every church division are Christians who can't find a way to worship together. And this is even true for us here at Rooftop. I mean, we as a church have been around here for about 18 years or so. And over those 18 years, we've had our fair share of little mini-schisms. Every church does, not new. We've had a couple mini-schisms over theology. We've had a couple mini-schisms over leadership choices. Now, none of them were catastrophic. None of them were fun. (laughs) And they left a mark. Here's the thing, though. I really believe that every single one of those schisms could have been avoided if people involved, including myself, I tended to be involved in these, if people involved could have loved each other a little bit more deeply with the love of Jesus, every single one of those schisms could have been avoided. I mean, our, 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 our biggest schism, if you want to call it that, our biggest mini-schism, is about, happened about 10 years ago, and uh, after having a decade to reflect on it, I can tell you that there were many, many different causes to this situation. 
But I think the biggest cause was two people who stopped loving each other with the love of Jesus. Now, those two people are long gone. They're not like here right now. I'm not like sending secret messages. Two people, that person and that person, they stopped loving each other. They're gone. But so many of our Christian schisms are just the result of us not being able to love each other with the love of Jesus. And it hurts us. I mean, schism hurts our message. Schism hurts our effectiveness. Schism hurts the gospel. Schism hurts people. I mean, there's an awful lot of people in the world today who do not go to church, not because they don't believe in Jesus, but because they don't want to watch Christians fight all the time. That's why I think the devil's favorite strategy to upend the work of God is to incite division in the church. I don't know if you knew that, that the devil's favorite strategy to upend the work of God is to incite division in the church. Now, to be clear, I don't actually know that for a fact that that's the devil's favorite strategy. I didn't, like, find secret devil strategic manual down on the ground. What is that? Oh, my gosh! <laughs> we got it! <laughs> I don't know that for a fact, but after years of like watching and observing, I think we can be pretty confident about it. Now, here's the good news. There is good news here. The good news is that our God is creative and powerful. He's more creative and more powerful than the devil, and he can use anything, anything to advance the cause of the gospel. He can even use schism. I mean, the fact that we have 47,000 different Christian denominations in the world today not a good thing because, really, who needs 47,000 different versions of Christianity? At the same time, the fact that we have 47,000 different versions of Christianity out there mean that we have 47,000 Christian groups working very eagerly to preach Christ to a desperate world. I mean, it sort of takes away anybody's excuse for not giving Christianity a try. If they try one version of Christianity, they don't like it. And they're like, well, I tried it. I'm like, no, you tried one. You, there's like 46,999 other sorts you could try. It takes away everybody's excuse for not trying it. And that's the good news. God can use schism. I mean, frankly, as a church here at Rooftop, we're better because of the, 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 the conflict and the struggles that we've had to go through. It's helped us grow up. But that doesn't mean that schism isn't avoidable or tragic. And that's why Paul is writing this chapter in Romans. He's trying to head off a divorce between Jew and Gentile before it happens. He's, he's like a friend. I don't know if you've ever been in this position, but he, he, he's like a friend who, who has some married couple friends, and he can see them slowly drifting apart, slowly falling out of love with each other. And he boldly suggests the possibility that they get some theological marriage counseling before it's too late. That's what Romans 14 and 15 are all about. Paul trying to hold this marriage of Christianity between Jew and Gentile together, even if he's frankly not even sure if Jew and Gentile want to be held together. He's going to try. And here in this section of the letter, Paul has made so many important points that they need to remember to stick together, and that's what we've talked about over the past couple months. What's it going to take for God's people to live in unity despite their differences? It's going to take a lot. We've talked about these ideas. It's going to take freedom over disputable matters. We have to be willing to give each other freedom to think and believe and behave in ways that aren't central to the, the message of Christ. 
It's going to take mutual acceptance and not, not judging one another. Christ has accepted us despite our fracked out opinions and rampant immorality. Christ has accepted us. We can accept each other. And it's not our place to judge one another. That is God's place. It's going to take that. It's going to take uh, compromise where possible. I mean, compromise can be a sign of strength. It's not a sign of weakness. We talked about this. In order to maintain the unity of the gospel, you have to be willing to compromise on things that aren't essential to the gospel. And it's going to take hard work and prayer. I mean, Paul says, he insists, he says, make every effort, make every effort. Not make the half-hearted effort, not make some effort, not make the occasional effort. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the gospel of peace. And we've got to pray for it too. Pray desperately because our division is too great for us to accomplish on our own. These are the big ideas that we've talked about during this series. And I really believe that if God's people, if we here at Rooftop put these ideas into practice, our lives, our relationships, our churches will be healthier and more loving places and more attractive to a divided world that without the gospel is going to hell. And we can overcome our differences if it results in the salvation of the world, right? But there is one more remaining component to Christian unity that Paul mentions in this final passage. And I want to wrap up our series by briefly talking about it before we conclude with communion. Living in Christian unity will take many things, but perhaps most importantly and finally, it will take hope. As Paul writes in verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and all peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is Paul's final blessing for the Romans at the end of this section on unity. He doesn't mention unity in that verse, but in context, we can be sure that he sees the connection. The connection is that even as we struggle to live together, even though we let our differences get the best of us, we can have hope that someday God will make our unity a permanent reality. Even though our marriages are broken, even though our cities are fractured, even though our churches split, we can have hope that someday God will restore us to wholeness. And this is no vain hope either. As Christians, we do not hope for reunification in some sort of pointless, aspirational, wouldn't it be nice if kind of way. Kind of like football fans, hope that someday the NFL might return to St. Louis. Not going to happen. No, that's not our vain hope. Our hope is confident expectation that what we desire, God will deliver. On the authority of the risen Jesus, we have confident expectation that all of God's people will someday be restored to each other. We have confident expectation that someday Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, Orthodox and Baptists, men and women, black and white, Asian and Hispanic believers will gather together around the throne of Jesus without any walls of separation or disputable matters keeping us apart. That's our hope, that someday our divisions will in fact be healed. It is, 
to quote the words of our former president, an audacious hope. President Obama uh, wrote a book years ago called The Audacity of Hope, meaning that although it looked difficult, he still had hope that he could heal our nation of its divisions. He couldn't. He didn't. At all. Our country is now more divided than it ever has been. The mistake I think that President Obama made was that thinking our hope comes from the people and from the government. But our hope doesn't come from there. Our hope comes from Jesus, who alone has the power and the love to bring and keep us together. That's the God we worship and pray to. The God of hope, as Paul says. Our hope comes from God, the God of hope. Not from the goodness of humanity. That's an oxymoron. And not from the power of the government. Now, yeah, God does use us to do his unifying work here on earth. We are his ambassadors of hope and unity. We are the ones that he has chosen to bless with his power and vision so that we can work for peace amongst God's people. But we cannot do so without the hope that comes from Christ. Without that hope, without the hope that comes from Christ, it's too easy to give up on unity. I mean, the church is too fractured. Our relationship's too broken. I don't know about you, but there are plenty of people, plenty of even brothers and sisters in Christ, who have hurt me so badly over the years that, frankly, I will be perfectly okay if I never see them again. And I suspect that there are people in your life, brothers and sisters in Christ, even family members, with whom you are probably permanently alienated. Our divisions are deep and can seem quite permanent. I mean, who can even imagine being reconciled to these people? I was listening to a a podcast a while back on, it was a panel discussion on the potential of reconciliation between Catholics and Protestants. And there are actually ecumenical efforts to reunify the Catholic and the Protestant churches after 500 years of schism. Ecumenical means to bring together. And I was listening to the podcast, and I actually got excited to think about it. Catholics and Protestants working together under the common banner of Jesus. I mean, think of what we could do together. It's kind of like imagining St. Louis County, St. Louis City. Imagine what we could do. I mean, serving Jesus is just done better together. But sadly, the consensus on this panel, on this podcast, the consensus across the board was actually that reunification of the church here on earth is a pipe dream. This is the opinion of experts who study these things. That it's a pipe dream. Not going to happen. Divisions are too great, too much water under the bridge. I mean, Catholics and Protestants can't even agree on who Jesus is. How would we worship him together? Maybe it is a pipe dream. I mean, maybe rooftop itself is a pipe dream. I mean, we started rooftop 18 years ago Because we dreamed of a a big tent Christian place. Well, all kinds of Christians from all kinds of backgrounds come and worship Jesus together, learning and growing from each other without dividing over non-essentials like music or finer theological points or dress. Maybe that's impossible. Maybe it's a pipe dream. Plenty of people have actually told us over the years, eh, good idea, pipe dream. But to the core of my being, I have hope that it's not. And here's the thing. 
I got Jesus on my side. In Christ, we have hope that it's not a pipe dream. It's his vision. Hope is the spark that lights the fire of our efforts. Hope gives us courage to not give up when we face obstacles to unity. I mean, think of it like this. Those who dream of a unified St. Louis have ample reason to give up. I mean, those reunification efforts have failed before, countless times. Hope, however, keeps them pushing forward. They have not given up because they have hope. Now, if better together with their earthly hope won't give up on their dream of civic unity, why would we Christians give up on our dream of eternal unity? And why would we work any less for it? Theirs is an earthly hope that cannot last and has no real power. Ours is a divine hope that rests on God's promise and the power of a resurrected Lord. If Jesus can overcome death, by God he can overcome division. In his, <clears throat> in his I Have a Dream speech, Dr. Martin Luther King actually talks about the importance of hope. Maybe we'll be thinking about these things tomorrow. Hope, he says, is the motivation that keeps, keeps the dream of racial uh, harmony and reconciliation alive. Towards the end of his speech, he actually spoke these words that maybe you will recognize. He says, I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain, the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. Now, if Dr. King were alive today, I think he would no doubt celebrates some of our nation's progress on race relations, but I suspect he would also lament, greatly lament, how little so much has changed. We still have race riots, we still have rampant discrimination against people of all types of creeds and colors. I don't know if you knew this, but slavery has never been so commonplace in the world as it is right now. This is the mountain of despair that King talks about, the sense that no matter how hard we work, the sins of division and selfishness just seem immovable. Dr. King might have been tempted to give up. Dr. King, as we know, was tempted to give up, but he did not. He didn't because his hope was not in his own efforts or those of his followers. His hope was in the Lord, in the Lord's purposes. That's what he writes. Listen to the words again. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith I go back to the south with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountains of despair a stone of hope. 
This is why the MLK Memorial in Washington, D.C. was titled Stone of Hope. It had been hewn out of the mountain of despair. Dr. King's hope was in the Lord. So is ours. And this matters. It matters because the only one who wants God's people to be more unified than us is God. The only one who believes more than us that worshiping Jesus together is better than worshiping Jesus separately is Jesus. It's his vision. It's his plan. And someday Jesus will make that happen. Jesus is committed to the unity of his people. He prophesied it centuries ago. He's not going to give up on it. Someday he will bring it to pass. What remains for us is to hold on to that hope and work for that unity with our brothers and sisters in big ways and in small ways every day until that great someday arrives. We're going to close this series with communion, which feels appropriate. Practice communion on the third week of the month here at Rooftop. It's the ultimate demonstration of unity, communion, union with each other through God. In communion, we're reminded of who we are as God's people. We are as family gathered around the dinner table despite our differences. That's why we practice open communion here at Rooftop. Anybody who identifies Christ as their Savior can join us at the table, regardless of church home or denomination or your little opinion on this little matter. Communion is a reminder of the great banquet in heaven that we will all get to enjoy and experience together. Communion is an hors d'oeuvre. Communion is an appetizer. Reminding us of the wedding feast, the main course that we have to look forward to. And until that time, we should work for it. We should work towards it, loving one another, forgiving one another, as God has forgiven us through Christ.